Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched The Fisher King. And this is John, and thank you for joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. Before we start, uh, we are going to give an, another trigger warning, content warning. We'll be talking about mental illness, suicide, suicidal ideation. Mass shootings. Mass bit. shootings, yeah. So in The Fisher King, uh, Jack Lucas is a radio shock jock whose comments incite a frequent caller to commit a mass shooting at a New York club before turning the gun on himself. Years later, Jax, played by Jeff Bridges, is still distraught and plans to kill himself when Perry, a mysterious homeless man, played by Robin Williams, comes to his aid and informs Jack that he is the hero that Perry has been needing all along to defeat the Red Knight and retrieve the Holy Grail. Screenplay by Richard Lagrevanesi, directed by Terry Gilliam, and released on September 20th, 1991. Uh, first, I apologize if I mispronounce that name. <laughs> Richard, we can look it up. Yeah, Richard uh, La Gravenisi, perhaps. Uh, anyway, uh, before we get into the uh, the meat of the movie, whenever we have a piece of physical media, we like to uh, give the coming attractions, the previews. Uh, and in this case, we had uh, a copy of the DVD, which had four previews on there. Uh, so not nearly as exciting as what we saw with Cape Fear in our video exploration with all those fun little older commercials, uh, but we had uh, two trailers, one, uh, two for Robin Williams, two for Jeff Bridges. Uh, we had Jumanji and Awakenings for Robin Williams, which I don't remember Jumanji well enough. <laughs> I did. Um, I've seen both, yeah. and yeah, I, don't, I remember watching Jumanji, but I think I watched that only once. Yeah, I think I think it was like a one and done type of thing for me. Yeah, uh, you could tell that the CGI graphics were very it's funny. <laughs> very outdated watching that trailer. Um, but I kind of forgot the conceit that he was like a a younger kid who got trapped in the game and then was brought Comes back to back life, out, you know, thirty yeah. something years later. Um, and then Awakenings, which I've never seen, a movie about uh, Robin Williams working in a mental hospital, I believe, uh, with mm-hmm. Robert De Niro, who had been. Uh, speechless for a long time and then starts to awaken and rediscover life and it looked very very sappy it is very sappy it's it's kind of similar to what we'll talk about in a way okay just mostly mental illness and yeah some of the same scenarios and themes and then for jeff bridges they had uh the mirror has two faces which was also written by richard lagravenesi lagravenese uh, and then also Starman from 1984, I think it was. So that was the oldest one and honestly the most interesting out of the Starman four. is amazing and we should watch that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen that since I was little and I used to really love it. I don't think I've ever seen it. <clears throat> so 
Um, but oddly, no trailer for The Fisher King on the Fisher King DVD, which is very unusual back in those days. So I'm sure the Criterion edition of The Fisher King probably has it, but ours did not. I mean, maybe whoever created the DVD was like, hey, if you like this movie and you like these actors, watch these movies that they're also in. Mm-hmm. That are owned by our studio. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what happened. But yeah, so we'll show like little snippets of that on our website as well. Get you that nice little view of that CGI monkey in the car in Jumanji. Well, my favorite part in that trailer was the boy being sucked into the game. <laughs> oh, yeah, like his hands. If like, we can are, find like, that. Holding in half, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was fun. Um, so, yeah, well, we actually ended up watching those after the movie, but, you know, coming attractions, because trailers, previews, fun stuff. Uh, but let's get into The Fisher King. Um, so have you've seen this movie before, right? Yes, I've seen this movie a lot. A lot, Okay. Um, for school, just personal enjoyment. I think personal enjoyment. I, I, yeah, it was on cable a lot. And, you know, I used anything that was on cable. I stayed home a lot watching movies all the time. So if it was on cable and it was (laughs) on during the mid 90s, mid 90s, I was watching it. Yeah. I've only seen it the one time before. Um, and that was... As part of a school project for one of my English classes, um, I don't remember if it was junior or senior year, but uh, it was one of many resources that we had to use for a, a term paper that we were producing. I think the class probably gave us like a list of different options that we could use to write a paper on specific topics and you know religious themes and whatever else. Um, and this was like one of probably three or four or five films that I, you know, that we had to include mm-hmm. along with other books to write this term paper. So it was very much a homework assignment and something that I didn't pay tons and tons of attention to because I knew I had to get through all this other stuff, too, in order to write the paper. So I have a very, very minimal memory of this movie before coming into it now. So it was like I was watching it for the very first time. Okay. Virtually. Um, and I think that, aside from the homework aspect of it, I don't know if I would have had the emotional maturity to fully grasp this movie back then. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, um, I remember not liking it all that much when I saw it, and maybe it was partly because it was homework. Um, but I think the other part of it is I just didn't fully grasp some of the themes that it was presenting, or um, not to skip too far ahead, but like when Jack is like yelling at Perry near the end of the movie, I probably took that too literal and thought he was like legitimately mad at Perry rather than like trying to convince himself that um, some of those things don't matter. So. I think I probably just didn't fully grasp the context and some of the uh, the themes of the movie back then. Huh. But now I think I do. Maybe. We'll see. I, I mean, I growing up, I really liked this movie f- for some reason, even though it's very depressing. And I think I watched it a lot also because, you know, Robin Williams is in it. Yeah. And then... 
But it also made me cry a lot, and I was also a little scared whenever they showed the Red Knight. Mm. That kind of scared me when I was younger. But other than that, I was mostly sad. I like sad movies, I guess. Well, maybe that was part of my problem, too, because it was sort of presented to the public as a comedy. And it had Robin Williams in it. Yeah, it has moments. And so I was, like, probably more in that mindset of, you know, when I was a kid, I would, you know, want to watch like oh, Robin comedies, Williams, yeah. you know, like, you know, Three Amigos and Spaceballs and, like, you know, stand-up comedy on A&E or whatever it was. Um, and, like, I knew Robin Williams from, you know, Comic Relief, you know, and, and some of those other movies that he had done uh, otherwise, but I still wasn't really used to him doing dramatic roles, even though he had in the past. I just had never seen any of those. Um so I think maybe that partly contributed to it as well. It's like I was expecting something that was more funny, and really it was only dubbed a comedy so it could have a better chance at Golden Globes, probably. Was it nominated for Under the Comedy? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That category? Okay. That's weird. Yeah, but... Golden Globes tends to have a very loose definition of comedy. Yeah, I know. And Whenever every, we... every year they have like one or two where you see them in that category and wonder... Why? Yeah, we always wonder, is yeah. that even funny? Yeah. Like, is there it a joke It had one joke. Yeah. Okay, it's a comedy. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, they sing, you know, New York in June a bunch of times. It's a musical. It counts yeah, as a comedy yeah, yeah. and or musical. So, so yeah, it, it's not a comedy. But a it does, dramedy. <laughs> it does have comedic moments in it, for sure. It, there's some... Um, Comic relief, as it were. But yeah. Uh, In general, yeah, the movie deals a lot with um, the issues of homelessness and mental health. Like, almost exclusively, there is that bit of religion in there with the... Yeah, with the story of the Fisher King trying to find the Holy Grail. Yeah, which I'm not very familiar with. I'm not sure if you know much about it. Vaguely. Ron Williams goes over the story at one point. Yeah, he goes... He, he tells a vague, like a very quick summary of yeah. the story of the Fisher King. Yeah, the the main crux of it is basically, uh, the main takeaway that I got from it was at some point this king who had been searching for the Holy Grail for a long time is sitting exhausted in his throne and this fool wanders into the castle and the king said, can you please get me some water? I'm really thirsty. And the fool gets him some water, and it happens to be in the Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. And the king is saying, you know, how did you find this? What did you do? And, like, and the fool just said, well, I don't know. I just knew that you were thirsty. And I think that's, like, the key line is, you know, it, it was less about finding this object. It was more about, like, I need to help you. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, sort of, like, almost makes the material reward uh, materialize because of the act of kindness is what I got out of it. I wasn't a hundred percent sure in this story, who was the Fisher King and who was the fool at the end. I think it was mostly to me, you know, the real Fisher King was probably Jack that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, and then 
I think, I mean, for me, this is, you know, a, to me, this is like an unconventional love story between, it's two different love stories. Uh-huh. And it's you like. You could argue three even, really. If you say Jack and Perry as. Sure, the like they're. Themselves, yeah. Yeah, their friendship with each yeah. other. And, you know, Jack as the real Fisher King because, you know, he lost his ability to love, but, you know, he gains it by the end of the film. Yeah, he's completely lost and doesn't know what to do with himself and he doesn't have a purpose in life. And the quest of him going to get the Holy Grail for Perry is, yeah, um, is Perry's way of giving him the chalice that's him quenching jack's thirst so yeah it it could be taken either way and i think that's one of the things i like about how that ends since we just skipped to the ending (laughs) i don't know we can go back and forth talking about this yeah um if we want to talk about the the beginning of the movie so um yeah jack lucas plays this radio shock jock um very much, you know, inspired by or, you know, taken directly from, like, the Howard Stern model of of things where he's saying, you know, inflammatory things. He's, you know... Um, like making fun of his phone caller, like the yeah. people that call in. Or it's always... And it sounds as if the people that do call in are regulars because right. the guy that does shoot up the place, he's like, oh, so-and-so. Yeah, it's Edwin. you again. It's yeah, Edwin. Edwin. Again. Okay, it's Edwin Perpetual again. Loser. Like, what's your problem today, Edwin? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, making fun of him. Yeah. But yeah. he's making fun of everyone that calls in. Yeah, he's making fun of everyone. And, and the idea is that he assumes that everyone's in on the joke and, and making sure that they're not taking it seriously. But Edwin is the sole exception. Um, and so Jack's living the high life. He's about to possibly star in this new sitcom and everything and get out of radio and go into TV. Um, you know, he has the the big New York apartment and everything. He has the money, he has the girls, he has the limo and everything else. Um, and then the mass shooting just kind of ruins, ruins his career. Um, but I think more importantly, it shows that Jack is, is ruined and um, mentally by the whole thing. It's part of his issue isn't that he lost his fame and fortune it's more about he doesn't know what to do with himself anymore and he feels this incredible guilt for possibly being responsible for this shooting yeah since edwin uh took his words to heart and and then um killed people including what ends up being uh we learn is perry's wife yeah, it's one of the people in the bar that he shoots up. Yeah. And yeah, that's he, how Perry became Perry, is that he went into a catatonic shock and then came out as this uh, person who believes that he's seeing uh, little magical, people. magical beings and he's, you know, on a quest from God to get this Holy Grail back. Yeah, it's, yeah, he goes into this catatonic state and, you know, this hallucinatory you know, finding the red knight that terrifies him, which I feel like that red knight is probably grief. Yeah, I think it's like his PTSD and then also maybe schizophrenia in a way with the hallucinating. Yeah, it's it's definitely a little bit of the grief aspect. I I think 
in terms of the visual representation as well, I think it is meant to be something of um, personified by Edwin because like the, the the horse has all these flowing red like tassels and, and you know whatever else mm-hmm. in there and the uh, the knight's suit shoots out flames from like the the helmet. Okay, yeah. And everything, and so I feel like that might have. That you know, was that like, signifies Edwin. Yeah, like the the shotgun like, oh, blast no, this is gonna happen. and like the blood splattering and like you know. I mean, yeah, it is very traumatic because yeah. the she gets she gets shot and the his wife gets shot in the head and yeah, in the back her the brains head. basically splatter onto his face. Yeah, which they show, and I can't. Which they show, yeah, and which is traumatized. That is traumatizing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It, it's. It's it's a very graphic reveal near the end, um, but yeah, I think it's it's grief with that you know uh, more visceral reminder through the the visual side of it as well. Um, so uh, before we even meet Perry, though, I think yeah. So Jack is down on his luck in terms of his career, but now he's, three years later, he's working in a video store with his current girlfriend, um, Anne, right? Is it Anne? Yeah, it's Anne. Mm-hmm. Making sure it wasn't Annie, and I was just misremembering there. Um, but completely unsatisfied with his life, but, you know, Anne is supporting him in every single way possible. <laughs> right, I mean, she gives him the job to work there, she's living with him, with her, and... Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he's basically, like, leeching off of her at that point. And she's starting to get sick of it. Uh, it's really hard for him to shake what has happened and try to move on from his life, which, you know, it's it's been three years, but I think that's probably very understandable still. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you feel personally responsible for this type of oh, tragic yeah. event. Um, really hard to deal with that. And so, you know, he stumbles into alcoholism, I'm sure. Um and at one point, he goes uh, under a New York bridge, um, and he straps cement onto his shoes and is ready to to kill himself. And that's when a couple of young thugs pull up in, in like this nice little race car thing uh, and look to beat him up. Yeah, they they just come to that area because that's where all the homeless. A yeah. lot of the homeless people live, and they just come by, and they're like, "I'm sick of you people." Yeah. I I don't like yeah. it. Yeah, they're they're trolls they're under like, the bridge. Taking, saying, yeah, we're sick of the homeless. Taking advantage of our city or whatever mm-hmm. like that. And so they're prepared to to beat and kill Jack. And that's when Perry and another group of uh, homeless. Uh, like vigilantes say, yeah, or something. I was say like <laughs> renegades. Like neither of those words are whatever. Uh, he pretends to be a knight. He speaks in, in, you know, like night talk. Yeah. And 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 they're all dressed up as if they were cosplaying, you know, medieval times or something. Yeah. And and then they save Jack. Um, and that's how things get rolling along. Oh, side note. One of the punks was played by Dan Futterman. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't know, Dan Futterman, um, he was up, in the Birdcage with yeah. Robin Williams. Yeah, he ended <laughs> up playing Robin Williams' son in the Birdcage. Yeah. 
a few <laughs> years later. Uh, also, he was a cast member uh, in SNL during the down years. <laughs> like, you know, the, you know, like the, the sixth season when all the Lauren Michaels was no longer in control. He's um, in a very interesting episode of Sex and the City, too. So that's that's one of the punks. Um, and they make a repeat uh, appearance later on in the movie, Yeah, too. they come back later on, and I'm just, I'm thinking, do those guys, those punks come every day to underneath that bridge or once a week or once a month saying, I'm sick of you people, because they say the same thing, saying, I'm be. just sick and tired of you people taking advantage of our city. Yeah, it really could and be. And they just pick a random homeless person to beat up. But they, they almost kill because they're, like, slashing him with a knife. and Yeah, I think that honestly probably is their intention. To kill. Yeah. And, and they probably could get away with it because yeah, how much I mean, attention is, is given to murders of homeless people, unfortunately. It's not yeah. very much. And, you know, who would report it and, you know... So, yeah, I, I think that's that's part of the issue and part of the story it tells is just, you know, how the homeless are treated in society. Um, and it, I don't think it beats you over the head with the, the various different aspects of it. I think it just slowly kind of introduces these themes like, you know, yes, these people are sometimes sought out, unfortunately, for violent acts. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with, like, the financial aspect of, you know, how everyday New Yorkers, meaning, you know, just normal everyday people interact with the homeless in general. Like there's that scene in the um, Grand oh. Central Station mm-hmm. with the man in the wheelchair played by an uncredited Tom Waits. Yep. Uh, who will appear in, I think, He's in four Brisbane. more 1991 movies oh, really? beyond this? Up to? Uh, I did more. not know that. I just knew he was in wrist cutters and I was like, oh, it's Tom Waits again. Yeah. <laughs> He's been in a bunch of stuff, uh, obviously also known for his music. Um, but yeah, he's going to be in like Queen's Logic and a couple other ones in 1991. Um, but yeah, so Tom Waits is, is there talking to Jack. Um, and he says, you know, someone drops a coin in his cup and Jack says, that guy didn't even look at you. And Tom Waits says, yeah, they pay so they don't have to look at me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was, and I like that part. It was just very interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of those interesting lines in the movie that, you know, they don't go too deep into it, but they say what it needs to say. Right. Along that comes with the the stigma of mental health. I think a lot of people assume that people who are homeless may suffer from mental health issues at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of, unfortunately, something that goes hand in hand with each other. Um, and that's personified a lot with Robin Williams's character, who is obviously very much down on his luck, had a major traumatic episode in his life, and is suffering from some sort of mental health issue here because he thinks he's this other person. His real name is not Perry. Um, it's, it's Henry Sagan, who was a professor at a college in New York, um, and then he becomes Perry after the incident, which is supposed to be representative of Percival. I don't know how well the movie portrayed mental health. I don't... I mean, the whole mental hospital scenes were 
weird to me because it didn't really seem as if they were being really treated, quote unquote. I mean, they were just there in a room on beds. And I don't know if they just keep them there just, you know, so they can have a bed and food, but nothing else. Like, no actual mental health treatment, no psychiatrist or psychologist coming by to actually speak to them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, you know, they were portrayed as, I don't know, like the stereotypical type of people where they are just, you know, sitting there looking off into space and like yeah, drooling, drooling on themselves. Yeah, drooling or, you know, pacing back and forth or just, you know. People in straight jackets, like clearly acting... You know, like what you see is crazy people in like cartoons or something. Um, and I think that's largely true aside from two people, which would be Perry, who has, I think we'll get into Robin Williams' performance in just a second. And then also there's this other homeless person that they meet in Central Park after chasing the Red Knight for the first time, I think, is when they come across him. Um, uh, yeah, because he the homeless cabaret singer who's landing. That was the, the other the thing is people are horseback riding in the middle of Central Park because that's how it happens. He's on a trail, and I thought he was just laying there waiting for someone to run him over. Okay, maybe had, yeah, maybe that. He but was like asking to horse, die by it, being run over, run and over by, by a horse. Okay. Because, I mean, he's screaming, help me, help me. And then a ho- person on a horse comes by. Mm-hmm. And, and he was, like, asking, yeah, please run me over. Yeah. But I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't know if that was sarcasm, uh, if he was there because I mean, of that. Yeah, that could or... be another thing where he just wants to kill himself, but he doesn't want to do it himself. So yeah. he's asking people to kill him. Or... or if it was just him looking for attention and just, you know. Saying, please, you someone pay know. attention to me. It, it's it's tough to know, but I think his character as well had, um, you know, obviously some bits of quote-unquote crazy because of, you know, those types of, of moments, but in general was just very, you know, um, someone you could really find a lot of humanity in and someone that, you know, was just a fascinating character just on their own you know they happen to be homeless but they're just this interesting eccentric person mm-hmm. <laughs> that they come along um and that was uh i don't think they ever gave him a name in the movie i think he's just like i, I forget what they call him in, in the credits but um played by michael jeter um who some of you may know from the show's Evening Shade or Picket Fences. Uh, he was nominated for a Golden Globe in 1991 uh, for Evening Shade. And he won an Emmy for that role. And he was also nominated for two more for that show. And also nominated for Picket Fences at one point, And a guest spot on Chicago Hope. And then later in life, some of our younger viewers may know him as Mr. Noodle's brother, Mr. Noodle. On Sesame Street slash Elmo's World. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was just known as the homeless cabaret singer. Okay. Yeah. So they didn't give him a name, uh, but they gave him a, a good part. Um, 
and he was just fascinating to work. I, I think, you know, I hope he at least got some consideration for like a best supporting actor. Yeah. You know, award at some point, even though he never made any of the, the lists that I saw. Um, I think he was a underrated performance if, if so. Um, so he had a couple scenes. One was in the hospital where they tried to take care of him and he tells his life story. We also learned that he was also part of that event. He was singing at the club when Edwin came in and uh, shot uh, all those people. So Jack just can never escape the tragedy. Everywhere he goes, yeah, you know, he every key character he meets is somehow related for to this thing that he... Uh, their trauma. Yeah, he possibly caused. And then he tries to redeem his character by... Allowing uh, Michael Jeter's character to sing uh, later on. Yeah, in the movie. When when he tries to help Perry. When he tries to help Perry and gets... uh, Get a girl. uh, Lydia uh, video membership. We can maybe talk about that in a second, too. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I I don't think the movie handled the the mental health aspect of it all that well. I think Robin Williams definitely came closest where... Yeah, he's talking to people... Right, that don't exist. Mm-hmm. He believes that he's um, this knight sent by God. He thinks that there's this holy grail in this castle in the middle of the city. Yeah, I'm, after that incident, he does go to that mental hospital, but they don't say for how long he was there. Right. And then they just, after he's quote-unquote done being there, I guess, they brought him back to where he lived with mm-hmm. his wife and the either it was a neighbor or their the superintendent super yeah, yeah the super of the apartment building that they lived in just uh, you know felt bad for him and allowed him to live in their boiler room mm-hmm. for free yeah so he's living down in the, the basement but yeah the they don't they just kind of, I don't know what, that was the thing. I don't know. They don't really treat these people. He just stayed there for an X amount of time. And then after that's it, he's just back to, yeah. they're like, okay, go back to your normal life. Yeah. He's just out on the street. It's like, oh, you woke up and you're talking now. Yeah. You now you eat. can, you're, you're able to do regular functions. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what that is. Um. I, I'm sure part of it was just the aspect of, oh, nobody can pay for this. Nobody's going to pay for this. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so even though he has those aspects to his life and, and how he thinks he's this other person, the performance from Rob Williams, I think, is really what brings, you know, a large amount of, like, empathy and grace to this character. Like, he's this very complex person and... Um, like, yeah, there's like a little bit of, you know, wackiness and goofiness in the way he talks and like how he's, you know, sometimes comedic, but like he can, he can switch at a moment's notice to like, uh, you know, telling this offhanded joke and then having just an immense amount of pain in his face. You know, it's this massive range of you know, humanity in there. And it's hard not to root for this character. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. really want everything to go perfectly for him. Um, and I think that there's probably no, 
no real bad guy in this movie aside from the two thugs who try to purposely harm and kill. <laughs> but um, or you know Edwin, I guess yeah. Since he's, he's, yeah. I mean um, Edwin also suffered from a mental illness he as did. well. Yeah, so. they don't really get to get into that too much. Um, but I mean like something that the movie does well is I think that, you know they they turn Jack into somebody who is still trying to hold on to the I don't care about the people lower than me aspect of his life especially when he is able to get a second chance later on in the movie um, yeah but overall you know they do turn him into somebody who does have that that depth who does have um I don't know how to explain it, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, he's he's not a one-dimensional thing. He's he's very tortured. He has he he cares about the people that he's surrounded by, even though he doesn't want to. And um, he becomes better for it in the end. All this time we haven't talked about Anne. Yes. All this much. What do you want to say? <laughs> I I love Anne and I love Mercedes Ruel. <laughs> Yeah, so we haven't talked about Anne too much, played by Mercedes Ruel. Um, she did not have a whole lot of credits to her name before this. I think she maybe got a start, or or no, not a lot of big credits before this. She was in Married to the Mob, and I think her biggest role was that she was the mom in Big. Yeah. Uh, with Tom Hanks, of course. Um, and then after this, she went on to great success in Lost in Yonkers, especially on Broadway. And also played the mom in Last Action Hero. Mm-hmm. But then sort of probably fell victim to the uh, the typical uh, Hollywood issue of older women not finding roles that suit their needs. And so it's a lot of guest spots and They may have just, smaller you know, they parts always typecast her as, you know, the loudmouth Italian woman or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But we'll see her again in 1991 for a movie called Another You. Uh, with uh, Richard Pryor, um, but yes, yeah, so, I mean she's she's absolutely amazing in this movie. Uh, she's another. I think just in general, like all of the characters, it's just amazing how complex everyone is. You know? mm-hmm. I think it, it's just fan, fantastic and fascinating writing that there's so many different layers and aspects of these characters in such a relatively short amount of time that each one gets on screen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we'll get into the awards that she won, but she did win awards for this performance. Yeah, and she deserved it. Uh, I think one of her key quotes, since we're talking about here and there, like quotes that get to us, is like she says that she thinks that marriage is basically, you know, God and the devil getting together and trying to work things out. I thought that was an interesting Yeah, I, I think a lot of the stuff that she said about relationships and men and stuff really... <laughs> that's kind of I mean I think me just growing up and watching these movies you know just like sleeping with the enemy and then this um I I mean through other stuff too I was kind of like why do I want to be why do I want to be in love if this is what love is (laughs) right so me as like a 11 12 year old 13 whatever watching these movies I'm just thinking in my head that why would I want to be in a relationship if it's like this? 
Yeah, where it's just like not fully reciprocated, or yeah. if it's like conditional based off. Because of, she oh. is obviously in love with Jack, and then you know, near the end, he, you know, when he starts to get starts back to into feel better, he, feel thinks, better, he's, he thinks he solved. He gets everything. a second chance at a job, and then she's like, "Okay, let's get another place. Let's do this and that." And then he wants to take a break basically and that's when she goes off on him yeah and she's like i love you and then he's like why do you even love me yeah and jack is you know yeah as soon as he gets that whiff of success he's thinking about all the different things that he could leave behind and, and doesn't consider all the things that that Anne had done for him for years at that point yeah, I, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you for thinking that way. I'm sure there's probably going to be plenty more examples of this where the uh, the man is a uh, man is a total asshole, and the woman yeah. doesn't deserve that. Um, and then, sort of not really contrasting. I don't think that's the right way to phrase it. We have uh, Lydia, who is the love interest of Perry, uh, played by Amanda Plummer, and she is a very, very eccentric woman. Yeah, I like her character. I, I like her, too. I mean, I, okay. I like both of the women in this would, movie. Uh, here's the thing. I like her character, but I don't know if I would like her in real life if I had to interact with her. Right, yeah, because she's kind of like a, quote, Karen in a way. Because she's, sort of, when yeah. she was talking about, um, when she... She was getting the free membership. She's like, I'll, I'll do this if it's free. And like, you know, is that free? And she's like, you told me this is free, so yeah. I want it for free. Yeah. And then she just started very, like going off. Very quirky, very combative. Um, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't want... I can understand. paranoid in her yeah. own ways. I understand that she seems like she doesn't have any friends. Like, she just keeps to herself. Mm-hmm. And you kind of tell, like, at her job, she doesn't really speak to anyone else. And um, and we come to learn it's because she keeps right. her defenses on the highest yeah, level she, at all times. I mean, times, she keeps her walls basically. up. You know, but it doesn't really, they don't explain why. That's just how she is. She's very mousy. She also kind of, even when she, when Perry's following her around and, you know, she's coming out of the building that she works in. And going through this that sliding door, mm-hmm. she's you know even kind of fighting through that. Yeah, because people are afraid whizzing. To, yeah, people are whizzing around her and just her. like going in front of her, pushing her out of the way, and she's like, uh, uh, like I can't even get through the door type of thing. Yeah, and apparently that's her routine because Perry knows that you know exactly she does that she like every up. single day. And she always like does a loop around the revolving door, and because she gets pushed around. Um. Another good quote <laughs> that I wrote down was when they were waiting for her in uh, Grand Central Station. And, and Perry's like, mm-hmm. you know, like clockwork, she's here every time, every day. Oh, she's late. <laughs> like, like immediately she says, it says that she's late after he says, oh, no, she's here at the same time every day. Mm-hmm. She'll be here. Oh, she's late. Um, and then that leads to a scene where she's walking through um, the train station and Perry is following her. And then everyone starts waltzing around, around. and it's a, a surprisingly long but you know very beautiful sequence of showing what's going on in Perry's head of like you know basically 
Yeah, they the play this very whimsical her. music, and he's just following her around lovingly. Yeah. I don't I like that scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and then she goes out of view, and everyone goes their own separate way. So I think it, it's kind of... Um, this is what Doc Hollywood was trying to do in the, like, oh God. You know, I don't in know. that carnival scene of like oh, saying, like, okay. oh, we're in our own little world. And, okay, um, like everyone else Everyone is... else disappears and we're dancing and we're falling in love. Like this is that except sort of the opposite where everyone is dancing around them and he's falling in love because, you know, she makes the world dance. Mm-hmm. You know? So, yeah, complete opposite of Doc Hollywood. Never thought you'd make that comparison on this, would we? Well, I don't know. We're making a lot of comparisons. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try to talk about 1991 movies in comparison to each other, right? Um, so I actually kind of want to take a detour and talk about um, uh, Terry Gilliam as a director, since we're talking about this scene and, and how it was sort of formatted a little bit. Um, I thought this was fantastic. Uh, I think he really did a great job of giving a lot of that Brazil vibe. I don't, have yeah. you seen Brazil? You've yeah. Seen Brazil, yeah. Right? So, you know, you get a lot of the, you know, some of those same like fisheye lens moments. You mm-hmm. get some of those things where you have close ups and people like looking into the camera all frantic, especially at the beginning I mean, where you have like Kathy and Jimmy is the annoying yeah, video yeah, sort that. of customer and stuff. The, um, it also gave me like 12 monkeys vibes just yeah. like with the mental hospital. Yeah. Same type of thing. Um, you got the, like the exaggerated spaces, you know, just general distortion and obviously like, you know, trying to make things as visually interesting as possible. Like, you you know, even in that opening scene where Jack is talking on the radio, we don't see him specifically. We're like swinging the camera overhead in this small little radio booth to Mm -hmm. try to make things sort of dynamic or, and he's kept in the shadows the whole time, except you just have like a close up on his mouth of the microphone. So, I mean, I think he did a really fantastic job of, of capturing that quirkiness of the world and of these characters through the directing and the camera work. But maybe part of the reason why he didn't get as much attention is because it was so Brazil-like. Like, it's that, just you know, too weird? Or that he was just, you know, doing a lot of the same stuff he had done. Just all his whimsical. Yeah. Like, it was too samey, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, he just does it in his like he that's maybe his signature you know he's got to do something like that yeah it could be I, I think you know he focuses a lot on you know the visual and the distortion and trying to make things look realistic but still just slightly off uh same thing with like fear and loathing in las vegas he does yeah, the same yeah. type of tricks and tactics there too so but yeah very much a terry gilliam movie but i think it's probably one of the best acted ones uh, that he's ever <laughs> okay. put together. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just a fantastic cast. Uh, so let's talk about Perry and Lydia. So we talked about how that's her, that's, she is his crush and Jack gets this idea in his head that he needs to, um, make things right by Perry by letting him like love again and, and introduce her to him mm-hmm. and set them up on a date. And so they give Perry like this temporary job in the video store and convince Lydia that she has won a free membership. And that's, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Where we talk we get about into, well, that uh, they also bring in the cabaret singer to her job. Yes, to sing that you won a free membership at this video store. Yeah, which is a wonderful sequence. I loved that number. Right. I don't know why that it was office she works in though. is really interesting to me because it's two leveled, and yeah. she's like in a pit with twenty other cubicles. They're all kind of open but they have these glass partitions between them but then above it there's a railing of people all around because everyone's Mm -hmm. looking down on her it reminded me of like i don't know like a a bigger library you know like a downtown library location except instead of bookshelves you have Office. A cluster of yeah. cubicles yeah, that office people can look down gear on. And yeah, you've yeah. got like cabinets and whatever yeah. between them and then cubicles. But then above was that railing and people just stopped and they're looking down that yeah. railing. It was, her. it was a really cool spot. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so uh, this cab racing nerd comes in with, you know, like a dressed in like this what is it, like a red sequin dress or something like that and high yeah. heels and, and whatever else and, and like has balloons and coming in to, to do this big long production number which in real life i mean why would you need to go to someone's office to give them a card and do a dance I mean, number they, <laughs> they don't it, i mean perry doesn't fun. know where she lives i i don't think she just, he just knows where she works that could be and he only knows that her name's Lydia. Wait, I don't even know if they, she they know. learn. Yeah, Sinclair. Okay. Yeah, they learn her name, and that's how they're able to find her and, and call her. Right. Yeah. And they find out where she works, and then he just busts in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, gives and she's very embarrassed by all of this. Yeah. But it's a fun performance. Mm-hmm. Um. And so yeah, then then she goes to the video store which is weirdly put together. They have boxes of videos on shelves that don't have backings on either side. The way that these... <laughs> <laughs> it perplexes me. Yeah. But I still want to go... It boggles my mind the how these... Store. I know. I want to go there, too. But the way that these videos are displayed, they're just the empty box standing mm-hmm. up as if they're, like, you know, cards when you make the castle out of, like, a deck of cards. Right, they're like very flimsy. Cards. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how people could even walk, because they're very thin, you know, aisles, mm-hmm. and if one bump knocks every single movie down... Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> and it, and it happens, and it a happens lot. millions of times when she goes into that video store. And then, you know, Anne is just you know, not into this. No. But like, she's doing this to help Jack, to help Perry. Exactly. Yeah, so Anne is going along with it because she loves Jack. Mm-hmm. And Jack wants to hopefully redeem himself. And that's how he thinks that it's going to happen. And so at that point, we get into like a little bit of a diversion into this um, romantic comedy bit where they, you know, they end up going to dinner and all kinds of like weird little cutesiness happens. Yeah, and Perry's like trying to mimic her actions at dinner at the Chinese yeah, to restaurant. Make her feel, that's, I like that scene a yeah, lot, too. It's, it's fantastic. And then um, everything goes fantastically well. And they kiss at the end of the date. And that's when, like, the flush, you know, the the rush of 
regret like and fear guilt and, regret, and fear yeah. and everything hits Perry His again. His trauma hits him. And sees Edwin and the Red Knight and all his memories start to come back. He starts to sort of relive who he is because of, of this and mm-hmm. uh, goes into a catatonic state once again. And the white pinstripe suit that he's wearing sort of gets turned into a straight jacket, you know, again. So it's sort of like memory, you know, mirroring his past in that way, too. Uh, and so he makes his way back to that bridge where those two guys are waiting and beat him up and cut him. And he's left for dead and uh, in the hospital, uh, speechless. So... In the meantime, Jack has gone back to his old ways because he didn't know that anything had happened or was starting to. Yeah, he. I mean, he and Anne think that they did a good deed. <laughs> they yeah. fought, they did what they he was meant to do to help him, and they go home. But then, you know, he gets that phone call because I think his wa- Jack's wallet is on Perry. Yeah, Jack had loaned Perry the wallet. To help, you know, him pay like for Like pay for other stuff, and whatever yeah. else, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only reason he was notified. But, I mean, yeah. Um, so I forget what, at what point Jack gets the second chance. His manager, who is played by David Hyde Pierce, calls him about, you know, they want to do... Remember they wanted to do... They want to do a different another sitcom. Another sitcom, but it's about homelessness. About homeless people. Because I think yeah. maybe Jack, they don't really show this, I don't know. Maybe Jack has, you know, pitched this idea to him saying, hey, I have this idea about, you know, me befriending a homeless man. I don't know. I don't that know. Was I think something it might have been where, coincidental or oh, okay. to be. Because I thought they, they wanted to do a TV show about, you know, him and a homeless man being friends right i think i I think i'm getting the very end sort of confused with things so he was the dinner goes well and he calls his agent saying i'm ready to work again and he says great i have this opportunity for you and then he learns about perry being in the hospital and then he goes to the meeting he hasn't had his success yet he just thinks he's starting to have his success yet i kind of get the timeline mixed up i guess Mm -hmm. um but either way, on the way to the meeting, he sees the cabaret singer again who, you know, is saying, Hey, Jack, Jack, remember me? Hey, yeah. how are you doing? And Jack just blows him off completely, ignores him, and starts to go back to his old ways. And then... Yeah, when, because he, in his mind, he's like, I, I helped good Perry. i again. Yeah, I don't need to deal with you anymore. Right. I did my thing. Uh, but wasn't quite to be. And so, the, yeah, he finds out about Perry in the coma. And Lydia is also now showing up. To the mental hospital. That was another thing that confused me because how did they get her info? How did they know that to yeah. call her, or how did she know that he? Unless I mean I don't. Unless, yeah, that wasn't fully explained. Because you know before the night after their night eating at the Chinese place, she's talking about you know about her issues with dating. Mm-hmm. And you know she she was saying you know you're gonna come upstairs, something's gonna happen, we'll exchange numbers, you'll never call me like she's just mm-hmm. assuming all these things that's going to happen even though they haven't even happened yet. Right. So 
But the other thing was that she's like, okay, you can call me, but he ne- he never <laughs> yeah, gives like, oh, she he never, never gives number. him her number. Yeah. But I think I don't know how did she know that he was in the hospital. My only guess is that she has the free membership to the video store. Anne and Jack are not together, but she goes to the video store, sees Anne, and Anne knows about probably tells about it her. and tells her, "Oh yeah, he didn't blow you off. This is what happened. And okay, this is where he is." Yeah. That's my only thing that I could assume. But the, yeah, the yeah, they movie could. Yeah, they before the whole date, you know, they become a little bit friends with each other. Right. So I think there would have been enough of a relationship there, or she might have come in and said, "Hey, where's Perry? I haven't seen him, or you know, do you?" I know he works here, mm-hmm. <laughs> so what's going on? They could have said. Um, so because Perry's in this coma, uh, Jack thinks that the only way to do anything for him is to retrieve the Holy Grail from the castle in Central Park or near Central Park. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, in the beginning of the movie, Perry shows a picture of this guy who's an architect. And yes. in this magazine, there is a picture of, you know, this cup that looks like the Holy Grail next to him. And Perry's like, I need that. Yeah, that, that is the, is Holy, the Holy Grail. I need this. So you're going to help me get it because mm-hmm. I cannot get in there. Yeah, and it's this guy's castle-looking townhouse mm-hmm. near Central Park, I guess, so that he has to break into. He has to, go, he has to break into it. So, yeah, it becomes like a little... Mini, uh, mini adventure, mini heist with you know himself, eighties <laughs> adventure music and everything in there, um, and then Jack starts to go a little bit crazy because he's starting to see Edwin in his mind, and you know he hears the horse of the Red Knight mm. on his way up, and so everything is starting to flash into his brain too, and then he gets the Grail, which he sees is just a cheap trophy, <laughs> right. not an actual Grail, but he. Grabs it anyway, um, leaves out the front, setting off the alarm, which ends up saving that homeowner's life uh, because he had either accidentally or purposely overdosed on something and was about to die. Mm-hmm. And then the alarm came and that saved him, and they revealed that through like a newspaper article. Um, and then gives the trophy to Perry, and after a little bit of time, Perry awakens and all is... Right with All the world, is good for the most part. <laughs> Except he's still Perry, you know. He's still yeah. He's still, he remains Perry. Yeah, he remains as Perry. He doesn't go, he does back, not to, go back to Henry. Yeah, you know. Yeah, his himself. I guess his actual self. But Lydia is there now, so I think it is sort of like you know he has this new life as Perry. So with it's Lydia. And he's moving on to this new life. Yeah. With this new person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, is he, quote, cured now? But, I mean... Yeah, they don't get into that at all. (laughs) It's a very, very quick ending after everything is resolved. Um, Other than to show that Jack and and Perry remain friends and that they are cloud-busting in Central Park at the end of the movie... They're completely naked, laying in the middle of the park. Yes, using their naked energy to make the clouds bust apart <laughs> in the sky. Uh, 
and then you see fireworks in the sky and, and the end is written in lights and everything is Yeah, the ending was again. very yeah. <laughs> whimsical again at exactly. the end with fireworks and all the the lights go on in the buildings in New York skyline and they start flashing back and forth. And then, you know, the New lights go up. Yeah, the lights <laughs> go up and it says the end in bright lights. Yeah. Very fun ending. Very, very satisfying for me, at least. So, yeah, I think we probably went through a lot more details of the individual plot points than we typically do, but there's just so much to kind of explain to get, you know, to fully understand these characters. You know, you Mm -hmm. kind of have to go through those plot points to understand what these characters have gone through. Um, And again, I think, you know, the performances all around are, are amazing. I do want to call out a couple of, like, random people <laughs> throughout the movie. Yeah, you going to do a pause on the credits? Uh, many, many, just sort of like shouting out some people who were, had very minor roles, but I think were important just in general. Um, so first off, I'll start slow. We got Pat Fraley, who was one of the callers at the beginning. I only mentioned him because he's also the voice of Krang from a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. I just oh. thought that was really interesting <laughs> okay. that, that Krang was one of the callers at the beginning uh-huh. of the movie. Um, there's a uh, the superintendent uh-huh. Uh, was a guy named Al Fan. Uh, I only mentioned him because he's, I think, our first repeat performer. He was also in Naked Gun 2. He was the guy who held the bomb and said, huh, this clock is four minutes late, and then it blows up. Hmm, okay. So he's now been in two of our movies, probably the first person to appear in two of our movies. Uh, Ted Ross was the first bum, that bum is what he was credited as, uh, seen at the beginning of the movie where, where Jack is still famous in, in the limo, um, where he's like, you know, picking his teeth at the window and mm-hmm, everything mm-hmm. else like that. Uh, he played the cowardly, cowardly lion in The Wiz, both on Broadway, which he won a Tony for in 1975, and then also in the film version. Hmm. He was also later in, uh, well, before this movie, he was also in Arthur 1 and 2. Personal favorite of mine, uh, William Preston played John the Bum, uh, who had a good line about, um, you know, someone asked him, you know, what do you think of the death penalty? And he's like, well, death's definitely a penalty. It ain't no fucking gift. Yeah, that guy. That guy had a recurring role on Late Night with Conan O'Brien as Carl Oldie Olson, <laughs> <laughs> which I watched all the time as a kid. So I'm very familiar with Carl Oldie Olson. He played that role. Uh, recurring until uh, a week before he passed away in 98. Uh, the guy who played Edwin, um, yeah. Christian Clemenson, he won an Emmy for his role in Boston Legal and was nominated two more times for that show. And so he was on 50-plus episodes of Boston Legal as well as 50-plus episodes of CSI Miami. So he went on to have a pretty good good TV career. And we already talked about Michael Jeter. Um, so yeah, like... Tom Waits, where I talk, you know, there's all kinds of people in this movie, just fantastic performances all around. You got Harry Shearer in that sitcom part. Yeah, who p- supposedly the... The Jack should the, have had. Yeah, his role that was taken from him, I suppose, yeah. for the TV show that was supposed to be about his own life. Yeah, something like that. And, and, uh, or loosely based on. Loosely based on him, and he had the uh, the Steve Martin knockoff catchphrase of, forgive me. Yeah. Which uh, probably could be, you know, 
taken a whole bunch of different ways in this movie if you want to sort of use that catchphrase and apply it to Jack in terms of the the storyline. And then we have the the leads, so we can sort of use this to talk about the awards and nominations of the movie, unless you want to have... Unless there's anything else we missed. No. All right. Uh, So in terms of awards and nominations here, so we have... uh, well, let's talk about Amanda Plummer as Lydia. So I, I just want to mention that she has, you know, done a bunch of stuff as well. Uh, she's the daughter of Christopher Plummer, which probably a lot of people know already. Uh, she had a Golden Globe nomination in 1993 for a TV movie called Miss Rose White. She was also a three-time Emmy winner. One of those Emmy wins was for Miss Rose White, also Outer Limits, and then Law & Order's Special Victims Unit, and also nominated for L.A. Law. So she's very much an accomplished actor and a whole bunch of... Uh, minor roles as well. Uh, mostly for So I Married an Axe Murderer. Yeah, So I Married fiction. an Axe Murderer, Freeway. She plays the mother in Freeway yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of that movie. Um, and then we have uh, Mercedes Rule. She was the big winner uh, in the awards season for this movie. Uh, for the Oscars, Mercedes Rule won the Best Supporting Actress Award, which I think we've probably mentioned before. Um, nominees for the acting, or, or for the Oscars, I should say. Uh, Robin Williams was named a lead actor nominee, but lost to Anthony Hopkins. Original Screenplay was also nominated, but Thelma and Louise won. Uh, nominated for Art Direction and Set Decoration, but that went to Bugsy, which we've already covered. Interesting. The original score from George Fenton in this movie uh, was also nominated, but Beauty and the Beast won, Alan Menken. And this movie was not nominated for Best Picture. Golden Globe side of things, it won two awards. One, again, for Mercedes Rule. And then also Robin Williams did win Best Actor in a Comedy and or Musical. Uh, also nominated for Best Picture for Comedy and Musical, but Beauty and the Beast won that. Nominated for Best Director, but Oliver Stone won for JFK. And Jeff Bridges was nominated also for Best Actor Lead, uh, but lost to Robin Williams. Hmm. So, those are your major awards there. Terry Gilliam was not nominated for anything. Again, I think it might have had something to do with the fact that it was a little bit too samey to his other work. Uh, but he had previously been nominated for Brazil screenplay, not for directing, and uh, he's you know obviously well known in the past for Monty Python stuff. Um, so yeah, this is his second movie about the Holy Grail. It is. Maybe not his last. I haven't seen some of his other later works, but it seems to be a recurring. The he, Holy Grail. Yeah, he he tends to tie a lot of those things in quest movies and like the mm. the Don Quixote one right, whatever right. else you know sort of all uh, yeah. kind of loosely themed along I each other I used to watch Baron Munchausen as a kid but I haven't seen it in a while so I'm not sure if that includes anything like that I don't remember either I saw that as a kid and at that time I wasn't too into it oh really <laughs> Like, it was... It it's was, all over the place. Yeah, it was weird and wacky, but not for, you know, like an eight-year-old kid, I guess. So, yeah, Richard, uh, the, the writer, was nominated for Best Screenplay for the Oscars. He had previously only done 
Well, his major one before this was a movie called Rude Awakening, starring Cheech Marin and Eric Roberts. So a big, <laughs> big step up in terms of quality. And then he later did things like Bridges of Madison County, and wow. Faces, goes, and Horse Whisperer. So he went uh, a little bit more on the sappy route of things. Unfortunately, no MTV Movie Awards. Like, not even a mention. This, this is the first. No, the second one. Second one. Was this like too uh, highbrow for the MTV crowd? I mean, I guess so. Yeah. I don't think uh, this would have been something for the teens or no. the early 20s. Didn't really tailor to crowd, that crowd, I guess. For it to be nominated. You know, you know Best Comedic Performance from Robin Williams. You don't want Robin Williams at the MTV Movie Awards? Come on. Last week when we talked about Sleeping with the Enemy, I think it was more important to look at past historical reviews. I didn't do that at all for this one. I didn't really see how it was received. Um, so I don't know about that, but box office wise, it was the number 31 movie of the year in terms of box office, box office performance made about 42 million. So decent success, but I think honestly, it's probably one that is, you know, deserves more recognition than what it even is getting now. Yeah. So shall we talk about pop culture of the week? Yeah, I usually try to find something that is newsworthy or true crimey and once again i couldn't find anything that happened this week of september 20th 1991 but looking for other stuff like songs or tv you know video games i always try to find something like books and i came across this bbc music article Entitled, Was September 1991 the Best Month Ever for Albums? And I'm going to just name a couple albums that were released in September 1991. The first one being Nirvana Nevermind okay. released September 24th, 1991. So just a few days later. Yeah. And then we have the same day Tribe Called Quest, the Low End Theory album was okay. released. So those are two albums that, yeah, I do listen to. Yeah, very different, but <laughs> very uh, very quintessential. On September 17th, 1991, was Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Oh, okay. That was released around that time. I just remember the Weird Al TV bit. About people standing in the store oh. waiting for Use Your Illusions 3 through, like, you know, 15. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and read another one that we, we both probably don't care about that much. Okay. Was Red Hot Chili Peppers, oh, okay. Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. No. Which, I mean, neither one of us are real Red Hot Chili Peppers fans. No, I'm not. They have a few songs I like, but... Yeah, when, that was when on they come the top. Around, we typically find something else. Yeah, we usually we usually kind of make fun of it and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then we say, oh, it's Heyo Seyo, and then yeah, <laughs> turn it Heyo Seyo's fine. There are. Uh, I'll add this. Well, we'll add this on the website because the there are other ones. There, you know, simply red. The Orbital had their first album, and then there's Swerve Driver, Talk Talk. Laughing Stock was released that month. I just thought that was interesting, where there's a whole article about these influential albums that were yeah. released that same month and year. All around the same time. 
90s was probably the best decade for music. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like one of the most varied, varied decades mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, it has something for absolutely everybody. Moving on to TV, TGIF, Friday night. What was going on? If you weren't seeing The Fisher King, were you watching TGIF? <laughs> so it's always the four. Mm-hmm. Full House, Family Matters. Usually Perfect Strangers this year. Perfect Strangers. Yeah. And then a fourth rando. Seems to be random, yeah. This time, uh-huh. it's a full hour of... It's a full hour of... Family Matters, no full house. Okay. This TGIF Friday. So was it... Okay, so it must have been a special event of some kind. Let me guess. Oh, okay. All right, because I I know the episode, and if you want to guess, It's just a pure guess. I don't know anything about it, but I'm assuming maybe the Walt Disney World trip, because I know that, like, some of these Disney shows went to... Or, some yeah, some of these ABC shows went to Disney's, like, cross-promotional thing, and they probably split that up into multiple episodes and so they might have done an hour long for that that's my guess nope (laughs) so the episode is entitled boom okay and it is about carl who is you know at the precinct and there's a bomb hidden inside and it will go off so this is interesting at the precinct die hard yeah (laughs) At the precinct, Carl is exercising on a treadmill, and then he discovers that the treadmill was booby-trapped. Oh, and he has to keep walking, like speed? Yeah, (laughs) with a bomb. So he has to keep walking until the bomb is diffused. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if I saw that episode. Does Urkel diffuse it? I have no idea. Does he talk somebody through how to diffuse it? And then he says, did I do that yeah. at the end? Did he Did he put the bomb there? Did he, in fact, do this? So, yeah, that was a full hour. And after that was the pilot episode of Step by Step. Ooh. So we are introduced. Right. to, And that stayed for a few seasons. Yeah. And then after that was Perfect Strangers. And then the TV show we talked about earlier, Baby Talk. Okay. So they went an extra half hour then. Yeah. Crazy. Right. There's always something different with the TGIF lineup. You never so know. So far. It's pretty good. All right. On to the music charts. So as of the weekend or week of September 20th, 1991, the number one song in the U.S. was Color Me Bad's I Adore Me Amore. Okay. <laughs> I have that tape. <laughs> and I used to play it a lot. I, I like that song. You. <laughs> Not my favorite Color Me Bad song, but okay. No, I it's mean, I, that's one of place. the three to four songs yeah. that they released. Or It's were... second of the two that I know. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the number one song in the UK was Brian Adams' Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Mm. And this is something that I wanted to ask you earlier, uh. and I was going to wait. Until we talk about it now. So video games wise. I know video games. Yes. This week, uh, popular video games for September 20th, 1991 was Bill and Ted's excellent video game on NES. Did you play that? Or do you have I rented it. Uh, So, I mean, I did not have an NES growing up. My parents uh, 
allowed us to have the Atari 2600, as well as a Commodore computer which had games, but we were not allowed to have an NES growing up, so um, I was able to rent them with neighbors or cousins or whatever. Uh, that game is very infamous for being very bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is very obtuse in its objectives. Um, basically, you have to run around these different timelines and try to find different objects that are located uh, in various spots of, of the, you know, uh, I don't want to say city, but, you know, whatever time period you're in. And they're always in a different spot, and you don't know where they are, and you have to, like, jump up and down in order to find them. Mm, okay. Like so it's, like, it's really crazy and awkward and, and stupid. I don't think I've ever played it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's meant, uh, it's known to be uh, one of the worst games. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> so, does not live up to the, the standards of the movie. Well, hopefully at some point we'll get to a, a happier Bill and Ted memory for 1991 here. Yeah. With uh, Bogus Journey. Um, so, ratings and rankings on your one to five star scale, where would you put The Fisher King? I give this movie a four. This is my first four. That is your first four. Uh, in my zero to four star scale, uh, with the half stars included, I'm going to give it a four as well, honestly. Okay. This is, I mean, when I was a kid, like I said, I didn't really fully grasp what I was watching. I think I probably had a completely different mindset. I probably had the wrong mindset going in, and now coming at it fresh, I just, I loved it. I was enthralled the whole time. I was, you know, fascinated by the characters. I thought the performances were amazing. So, yeah, it's just, it's one of my... It's going to stay on my top ten uh, for quite a while, if not for throughout this, this entire... For this year, or...? For 1991. Okay. Yeah. It'll stay on my 1991 top ten for a good long while, if not throughout the entire project that we do. Okay, cool. So... Would you watch it again? Everything's worth watching once, but would you watch it again? Yes, I would watch this again. Yeah, absolutely. There's enough layers. There's enough depth. You could probably find references to things that happen later in the movie. If you go back and watch it again, there's probably like hidden little things in there, like the, yeah. the Pinocchio doll and how it's referenced to him, you know, saying. Yeah, you know, I mean, we didn't really speak about the Pinocchio doll, but that probably was just, you know... In my mind, you know, maybe that was a reference to Robin Williams. You know, he was stuck in this spot. And then, you know, when Pokio becomes a boy, after Robin Williams gets the Holy Grail, he becomes a man. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it could be partly that. I also remembered that uh, when Jack was on the phone with Edwin, he was talking about, uh, he mentioned the Pinocchio story at the Uh same time. He said something like, uh, you know, about you think Pinocchio is a real story or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he gets gifted this Pinocchio doll shortly after. So I think there's a bunch of different meanings and things you can draw from that. So yeah, watch it again. Look for some of those things. And if you want to watch The Fisher King after listening to our in-depth review, as of this recording in March 2021, it's available on Fubo TV, Pluto TV, digital rental, VHS, and DVD, along with four trailers. As always, check your local listings. Uh, next episode, uh, you can listen to us, uh, on, I'll cut it all out. Uh, as for us, you can listen to us on all your major podcasting platforms. You can email us at 1991 movie rewind at gmail.com. 
And of course, you can always follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Just search 1991 Movie Rewind or go to 1991MovieRewind.com for the full list of movies, along with show notes and more. Next week, we're going to go in a completely opposite direction, and we're watching Double Impact. If you want to watch that with us, you can find it on Prime, Hoopla, Digital Rental, VHS, or DVD. See you there for some fun action excitement. Good night. Thanks.